Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for Pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today is December 12, 2007. In our podcast today, we will be speaking with Martha Curley, RN, Ph.D., about an article published in the May 2007 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, Pediatric Staff Perspectives on Organ Donation After Cardiac Death in Children. Dr. Curley is Associate Professor of Nursing, Anesthesia, and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and a nurse scientist at Children's Hospital in Boston. We are happy to have her here with us today. Good morning, Dr. Curley. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Would you please start by giving us an overview of donation after cardiac death and why you did this study? Uh, Sure. Uh, A few years ago, Children's Hospital in Boston wanted to uh, investigate staff opinion um, or really wanted to go forward with uh, some sense of donation after cardiac death um, based upon a request made to them from the local um, uh, organ bank. Uh, other organ banks throughout the country uh, are making similar requests of their uh, children's hospital. So the leadership structure there at Children's Hospital in Boston wanted uh, to um, go through some sense of a uh, a process uh, and identify whether or not donation after cardiac death would or would not be something that Children's in Boston offered. So they put together a task force that was chaired by Dr. Peter Lawson and um, Charlotte um, Harrison, who's a ner- who is a ethicist there. They chaired a group um, of us, uh, and our task was to identify whether or not donation after cardiac death was consistent uh, with the mission of the organization and also consistent with the values of the organization. Uh, Children's Hospital in Boston has a mission and values similar to other children's hospitals in that they provide uh, care across the illness perspectum in both an acute and chronic capacity. And the core values um, support that of the patient and family-centered care. So the leadership structure was interested in whether or not they should or should not provide donation after cardiac death within the institution. So our group um, went forth and did a systematic review of the literature and also canvassed outside the organization and inside the organization on whether or not this was something that would be consistent with the mission and the values. Um, I chaired the group that was um, delegated to uh, trying to find out whether or not 
the clinicians working at Children's Hospital in Boston would support donation after cardiac death uh, or not, and if they did, why, and if they didn't, why. Um, so I was in charge with canvassing internal opinion which was an interesting task because it wasn't as if there were um, questionnaires that were available that I could distribute to clinicians to get their opinion. And at the time when we collected th these data two and a half years ago, little was known about uh, pediatric um, uh, donation after cardiac death processes. And I don't know if we've made significant progress, but at the time, little was known. Few institutions were engaged in the process, and upon review, it didn't uh, lend itself well to a standard survey instrument that you would distribute to clinicians. Um, so what we decided to do, um, our group, was to do a focus group approach where we could present what was donation after cardiac death to clear up any uncertainty uh, at the time, uh, present what was currently being done with donation after cardiac death from a pediatric and adult perspective, and then pose the question to clinicians on whether or not they thought in concept whether or not DCD was something that was consistent with the mission and the values of the organization. Um, so we conducted our eight focus groups, and uh, the paper that was published in Peace Critical Care Medicine um, gives a summary of what we found when we did our um, thematic analysis of our data. Can you give us just kind of an overview of what your findings were? Well, it's kind of interesting because uh, the focus groups, we conducted eight focus groups, and each of the focus group um, provided a disciplinary perspective in that we interviewed intensivists and nurses and respiratory therapists and clergies and uh, surgeons and, you know, uh, anesthesiologists. And there were a lot of, uh, there was a wide spectrum of opinion. Um, but what we found was that if um, essentially the, the stance of the group was that if parents wanted an opportunity to do this, that they would do anything within their power to help parents be successful in what they wanted for their children at end of life. Uh, a lot of variability in support and opinion, a lot of, a lot of feelings around this this core issue, but the major themes that we were able to identify and also from the themes construct a, a framework of understanding was that we wanted right from the very beginning uh, to be able to identify who the candidate uh, for donation after cardiac death was, and the candidates were those in whom uh, we were we had already made a decision that we were withdrawing support, um, and we were, as best as we could be, pretty certain that when we withdrew support that the patient would have a cardiac arrest within an hour of withdrawal of support. Um, so the first part of all of this is to identify the best candidate, and then 
uh, clinicians were concerned about identifying if it was in the best interest of the child and who. It's kind of interesting who would be the person to be able to do that. And historically, we've always had parents do that. But there was some agreement and disagreement that, you know, whether or not parents would even uh, should be given the opportunity to do this in patients who were nonverbal or preverbal or could not say for themselves. Um, there were a lot of opinion on how best to approach parents about DCD, who should do that, when it should be done. And then as part of the informed consent process, uh, it was uh, the clinicians strongly felt that parents should have uh, knowledge of how death would be orchestrated with and without donation after cardiac death. Uh, for example, without DCD, it would be done traditionally within the intensive care unit orchestrated um, by the clinical team with parents having as much time as they wanted through different phases of the process, whereas if they chose to um, go the DCD route, that it would be more of an orchestrated event within the operating room and there would be limited amount of time that parents would be able to spend um, at death uh, because of the immediacy of needing to start the retrieval process. Um, there was also another major theme of if children's or any hospital embarked upon this, they had to make a commitment to do it well, that because uh, it is something that parents will remember for the rest of their lives, it had to be orchestrated so that it did provide as best of a memory uh, that we could provide. And we had to make a commitment of doing it well. And there were a lot of concerns that within major systems, there's always the hiccups of how systems work and how they don't work for patients. And then not, uh, last but not least, if we did do this, uh, that uh, the process had to be prospectively monitored and uh, we needed to start collecting data about who was approached and whether or not we were even violating parents' uh, trust in us by even approaching them. And then those who did or did not want to participate in the process, how they felt afterwards. That's an awful lot of background work. <laughs> yes. As you mentioned, one of the concerns with DCD in children is the need for the uh, family to leave the child as soon as death is declared so that organs can be harvested promptly. Um, can you discuss how the healthcare team and the family might deal with this issue? It was very, um, you know, I think there was a lot of concerns uh, from the clinicians uh, in that they wanted to be able to provide the known standard of care to parents who wanted to participate or um, and who could participate in DCD and those who did not choose to do that. You know, clinicians, when death happens within pediatric intensive care units, um, people who do the dying process well um, feel very good about what they're able to do to provide comfort to families. And there was a lot of concern from the intensivists, from the nursing, from the respiratory therapist staff, that that 
process could be replicated in a very different environment, such as the, in the operating room. And the operating room nurses and the anesthesiologists, uh, those who live in that environment, were very concerned that they could provide, um, that they wouldn't have to ask the parents to leave uh, after death was declared so that they could start their, you know, their operative process. Uh, so there were angst from many different disciplines, um, you know, uh, regarding how this could be done in a caring, compassionate way that it is so well known, you know, f uh, for our discipline. And the, I think the analogy was made by a clergy member is, you know, puffing out a candle, you know, and how do you puff out a candle? in the middle of an intensive care unit, we've learned to do that and we've done it well, but how do you do that in a very different sterile environment as, you know, uh, you know that is currently exists in the operating room? But then again, clinicians were really willing to think differently about the process if it meant doing something that the family felt passionate about. There's been considerable concern in the media about the use of sedation with the potential to hasten death <clears throat> after withdrawal of support. Um, could you discuss this concern? Well, I think there was a lot of bad press a few years ago uh, with the David Ash publication that, you know, showed that at the end of life there was, you know, a lot of drugs were used at the end of life. But I think as a discipline, we feel fairly comfortable now uh, knowing what comfort looks like at end of life and feeling comfortable with the principle of double effect, knowing that we give medications so that um, patients are comfortable. And if that, in fact, hastens death, then that's not the primary intention. The primary intention is to provide comfort. So I think uh, that there are a lot of medications that are used at the end of life. They're not used to withdraw you know, they're not used to terminate somebody. They're used to provide comfort. Um, and I think as a discipline, when we learn to do that, we learn that well, uh, that it provides solace to families. What are the potential legal ramifications, public relations, or even criminal consequences to the pronouncing physician if there's some kind of response, for example, on the EKG or the arterial line tracing, um, when an incision is made to harvest organs, even if an accepted period of time has gone by uh, before death is declared? And what might be the psychological or emotional impact on such an occurrence on the OR or ICU personnel? I mean, I think what we heard during our interviews is that there's a lot of unknown. Um, they, we just simply do not have the data right now uh, for us to be, feel very comfortable about uh, when is dead dead. Uh, when is it that you can say without doubt the patient is dead and you could start a harvesting you know, process, uh, an organ retrieval process. Um, and there was a lot of concern. You know, there's concern about, uh, you know, the uh, the well-perfused patient having a systole, and where do you start the clock? Um, and as we all know, most kids don't go from 
normal sinus rhythm to asystole and then are declared dead. They have, you know, they have all sorts of low cardiac output states before the fact that their heart actually does stop. And you can start a clock. And then once you start that clock of, you know, no cardiac output, uh, to what extent can you then start, you know, the organ retrieval process? Is it two minutes? Is it five minutes? Is it 10 minutes? Um, and there have been, um, there was a lot of discussion within our subgroups about, you know, when is, when does cognition and when does the patient no longer feel pain? And lots of visceral response uh, for, from the clinicians on, you know, wanting to make sure that the patient was not feeling any or had no capacity to feel anything when, in fact, the incisions were were starting. So, and our group did a lot of, uh, look, we did this extensive literature review trying to find, you know, when does cognition end, when does pain, you know, go, you know, the, the perception of pain cease. And at best, we could make a determination of five minutes. And we also dealt with the potential for auto-resuscitation, but in fact, the reported cases of auto-resuscitation really were in the stance of resuscitative events and not what we're talking about here, whereas the patient's not going to be resuscitated and they typically do not receive a whole bunch of catecholamines and resuscitative meds prior to, you know, um, starting the clock. So, you know, at best, it's very difficult to determine when is dead dead, but there's a lot of physician angst around that, um, you know, defining death and starting the clock and making sure that, obviously, the retrieval process does not start. And I don't think as a um, that we have the data to support, uh, you know, that process because death does not occur in the intensive care units, how we are orchestrating this to occur in the operating room. Children's Hospital in Boston has uh, subsequently developed a um, policy on DCD. Uh, can you give us any reflections on the experience so far? Uh, thus far, they're still uh, working it out. Um, after over, I would say, it had to be at least a year of dialogue and debate among which, you know, this qualitative study was um, was published uh, we did develop a protocol. Uh, it is currently available, I believe, at the Children's Hospital Boston website under uh, an ethics tab. Uh, the whole 100 pages plus of protocol are there for review and critique for other organizations to use. Please be our guest. Um, but it is still being debated. Uh, currently, the protocol is going to be rolled out in a phased approach. So we are only um, we will only start the process uh, on patients who have verbalized themselves that they would like to do this process, and we've limited to only kidneys, uh, and we have yet to roll out a patient. Do you have any other comments about DCD that you'd like to make? Well, I think um, we have an obligation to help parents with this decision. Uh, and to share with them, you know, what we do know about the viability of the organs transplanted from um, these cases 
And until we really have that data, we ought to go very cautiously. And anyone who I think uh, goes forward with a DCD uh, protocol within a pediatric patient, I think uh, should contribute to a larger data set so that we can help parents make more informed or better informed decisions based upon their experience, uh, the true denominator of patients who would even qualify for uh, DCD, and also organ viability. And I also think we need to prospectively uh, start some type of a study interviewing parents who have been asked who've said no, because we've had a lot of wonderful testimonials from people regarding successful organ donation experiences, but we have no data from anyone who was asked and who said no and how they felt about even being asked um, months or years after uh, they've lost their child. So there's lots of, I think, um, we don't have a lot of data to guide our practice, and we need data desperately. Well, I thank you very much for your very thoughtful comments today and have very much enjoyed having you with us. Oh, thank you very much. We have been speaking today with Dr. Martha Curley, Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania, about the article, Pediatric Staff Perspectives on Organ Donation After Cardiac Death in Children, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2007. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Join your colleagues February 2nd through the 6th, 2008 in Honolulu, Hawaii, USA for SCCM's 37th Critical Care Congress. Bring the entire family for this special congress, which will combine learning with ample leisure and tour opportunities making the 2008 Congress one you will not soon forget. You won't want to miss such highlights as the modified schedule, pre-Congress courses, Hopper Pass, casual dress code, the post-Congress event on Kauai, and more. The Society's 2008 Congress is not just a meeting, it's an experience. For details or to register, visit www.sccm.org.